Hello, I'm Ian Wielden, a senior lecturer at Newcastle University and host of the Cultural Peeps podcast. Today's guest is Steve Slack, a freelancer working in the fields of interpretation, museum techs, audience research and coaching. I first came across Steve through his excellent Routledge book, Interpreting Heritage, a guide to planning and practice, something that I use regularly with our students. In our conversation, Steve and I talk about his life as a freelancer and how the range of roles he's undertaken at the Imperial War Museum, the partnership organisation which gave rise to the London Regional MLA office and the British Museum perfectly equip him for life as a freelancer. We also talk about whether early career professionals need a Masters in Museum Studies to get themselves started in the sector, and Steve describes his approach to this dilemma, which was to use his experience in both the application and interview process to prove his skill set to potential employers. This conversation was recorded via Zoom in May 2023 and is an edited version of a longer chat. There are links to the various projects and organisations in the podcast notes, so you can follow up on anything you want to know more about there. I'd like to thank Steve for taking the time to talk to me about his career path so far, and I really enjoyed making this one, and I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. So thanks very much for joining me today, Steve. Um, could we just hear a little bit about who you are and what kind of work you do? My name's Steve Slack and I'm a, a freelance interpretation consultant. Um, and that means I work in the heritage sector. That could be art galleries, museums, uh, libraries, archives, uh, science centres. Anywhere really that's got a, um, a brown sign on the motorway or a gift shop or a cafe, anywhere with a visitor experience, that's the kind of place that I work. And I'm self-employed, so do I have a, a job description? No. But uh, I see my role as being really focused around visitors that go to these kind of places and trying to make sure that they have not only the, a, a great experience when they go there, but that the organisations that are making those experiences do them with as much insight about audiences as possible. So it's really audience focused, visitor focused. I spend most of my time in museums, libraries, archives, talking either with staff or with visitors, just watching people in museums, talking to them, figuring out what's going on inside their minds and their experiences when they're on site and using that knowledge and the best practice from the heritage sector to inform the the making of exhibitions and uh, yeah so what does that job look and feel like on a day-to-day basis is there such thing as an average day for you or is it more project orientated i tend to move from project to project that sounds like I finish one project and start the next one and that never happens. There's normally uh, a great deal of overlap. And what I love about being freelance is that no two days are the same. So currently on my desk, I have uh, working with a local authority museum who wants to make their welcome space more playful. So we're talking about playfulness in interpretation and how we build 
constructive play into a museum space. I'm working with a university who wants to build an exhibition about some of the research that's coming out of the academics work. Uh, I'm looking at some exhibition ideas for one of the national museums, testing out how that might work. And I'm helping another uh, art gallery with their tone of voice, how they communicate with their audiences. Um, and I'm writing a few articles and doing some audience research. And so, it's, yeah, no two days are the same. The subjects on my desk at the moment are maritime heritage, Victorian prisons, artificial intelligence, tartan, the history of tartan, Buddhism, something around portraiture. Like, there's loads of stuff on my desk at once, and that's just great fun. Quite good for um, general knowledge, pub quiz knowledge, um, <laughs> but it does, I must say, after a few years, tend to linger around for the amount of time I need it for a project, and then it disappears off somewhere else. Does the confidence that you have in a subject inform whether you decide to take it, or will you take it on and then learn about the subject that you might be dealing with, whether that's Buddhism or maritime history? It helps me if I'm not a specialist in the subject or an enthusiast about the subject. Right. Because that gives me a bit more of the perspective that a visitor would have coming to the topic. If I come to it cold, not really understanding the subject, I will ask of a museum or art gallery the kind of questions that a visitor will ask. If I come to a subject with some experience already of it or some enthusiasm for it, there's a chance that I won't ask the questions that a visitor would ask. Right. Um, and given that my job is to be the audience advocate, to, to champion what a visitor might understand or not understand about subject matter, if it's one of the subjects that I'm into personally, that becomes slightly harder. That said, when I approach a new topic and I've not got much insight in it, my first question is, what book do I need to read this weekend so that on Monday morning I can have a decent conversation with a curator so I don't come in like a complete idiot not knowing uh, how a subject works, you know, having a, a confidence or a vocabulary to be able to discuss it. But yeah, I don't tend to, to migrate towards subjects where I've got my own personal interest. Is there a particular point in that process where you normally enter a project? Is it normally at the inception? Well, just as there are no two days the same, there are no two projects the same. Um, because it is a, a soft discipline, it doesn't necessarily have a defined beginning and means I can jump into the project anytime. Sometimes, delightfully, at the very beginning when there's a germ of an idea helping to shape what a structure or a story for an exhibition might be. Sometimes it might be brought in once the, uh, the broad picture has been um, decided upon and it's my job to help fine-tune it. Sometimes I'm not brought in right to the very end. For example, you know, it's a job I'm doing at the moment where I'm just going to edit some text at the end of it. I'm coming in right at the end. The exhibition opens in a few weeks. I've got some copy editing to do and it'll go on the wall in a couple of weeks' time. So there's no set way for how I'm brought into it. So I'm constantly trying to learn about how exhibitions are run in different places. Are you also involved in the evaluation of that work as well? So once it's open to the public, you'll be feeding back on visitor responses to, to that interpretation. Evaluation is absolutely key to what we do in interpretation. For visitor research more broadly, trying to understand what's going on inside people's brains when they go to a museum. And uh, without it, we're a bit lost. Every so often, the curator will say to me, visitors think such and such. 
And my question back is, how do you know that? Like, have you have you tested that? Because uh, I spent quite a bit of time in museums talking with visitors, watching them, uh, bring them into focus groups, interviewing them, asking them to do uh, quick research exercises in the museum space. And without that knowledge, we can't make informed decisions for, for interpretation. So yeah, a large part of my work is that understanding of what's, of what's happening. That could be at the very start of a project. So what we call front end testing. You might just have an idea or a concept for an exhibition. You want to find out what people associate with that subject. What do they know about it? What do they not know about it? What are their misconceptions about it or their misunderstandings? What do they expect of that subject when someone makes an exhibition about it? Then there's a bit we tend to call formative evaluation. That's when you've got more than a germ of an idea, but a decent idea of what an exhibition might be. Maybe you've got your themes or your exhibition sections, you've chosen some objects, you've got some rough designs. You can take that to the public and say, what do you think of this? Do you want to help us fine tune it? What do you like? What do you not like? What could, what could improve it? Uh, what should we avoid? And that can really help with the refining of the design stage. And then there's the bit that you asked about in your question, summative evaluation, which takes place once an exhibition's open, going in and figuring out how do people actually use it. Of those objectives that we set ourselves at the start of this exhibition project, how many of those are being realised and how and why? So that the learning that comes out of a piece of summative evaluation kind of becomes the formative for the next project, if you like, the understanding of what comes next. If you do that cycle again and again, you build up a broad knowledge of what works and doesn't work in your organisation. So for me, it's a really crucial part of the interpretive process. There's a bit of a challenge when it comes to evaluating exhibitions that I've worked on myself because I have got a vested interest in them succeeding, right? I want the, all the objectives that we set out at the beginning to be fully realised, that visitors will feel this, do this, think about this, you know, that, that I wanted them to do. So I have to acknowledge my own part in that and maybe stand back a bit from the evaluation. I have done some sort of broad testing and, and checking in on whether work that we've done is, has succeeded, but it's quite nice to hand that over to someone else and say, Come on, report back to me. Did we actually do what we wanted to do in that instance? Um, yeah, but understanding visitors is really important part of the work. So it sounds like there's quite a potential for the relationships you have with clients to be potentially quite political. You know, people having preconceptions about what they want something to look and feel like or preconceptions about what kinds of messages they want to to give to their audiences and, and preconceptions about how their audiences might respond to certain things. So is that is that tricky to navigate? Hmm. The politics of exhibition making. <laughs> but I often feel a little bit like I'm sat in the middle of a seesaw. You know, I'm sat balancing in the middle of it and it's it's kind of tipping either way on uh, and I'm sat in the middle because um, uh, or that I'm sat in the and the knot in the middle of a tug of war. I might be being pulled backwards and forwards by, say, um, curatorial decision on one side pulling me one way and then a design element pulling me another way. The curator says we must get all of the objects out because they're all beautiful and the designer says well how about we only get 12 of them out so there's more space and sometimes there's a bit of the mediator role to play <laughs> for the interpreter. I guess when those tensions do arise and there are quite a few of them 
my response to those is to bring the visitor perspective into that. So we can use an evidence base to say, look, visitors think X, Y, Z, and therefore ought we to be led by that. There is something quite nice there about being freelance and not having to put up with any of the internal nonsense sometimes that happens. You know, we've all had it. Yeah. yeah. You parachute in and people tend to be on better behaviour, if not their best behaviour, when there's somebody external there. Do you find that, that people are a bit better behave when somebody out from the outside? I think when when you work together very closely, there's a type of politic that comes out of, pre, you know, from result of previous projects, of previous power battles and struggles that have happened. And I think by introducing a third party, you quite often see a lot of that fire dampened down. I think it's quite helpful so I just imagine that you are required to have quite strong diplomacy skills as a core part of your toolkit. Certainly people skills. Interpretation is a very people-based discipline. You know, we're concerned with visitors, but also, you know, it's a, yeah. it requires collaboration and teams working together and bringing people together into a, a safe and creative space. So there are some certainly some people skills involved. But I think you're also right that People do tend to be on best behaviour when an external person is is brought in, right? Um, uh, yeah, I, it's, yeah, it sometimes can be hard to understand what the real politics going on inside a, a museum is when I'm brought in because everyone's sort of sitting up straight and trying to be polite for the external person that's come in. I do miss some of that, some of the quite isolated, I must say, poor behaviour that takes place in the sector. Um, but also I miss all the great stuff that happens behind the scenes because when you're in a creative team and you're working together day in, day out and you're turning out really good exhibitions, it is really fulfilling and really rewarding work. Yeah. And to not constantly be a part of one of those teams, um, yeah, it's sometimes a bit a bit sad for me as a, as a freelancer. The beauty, of course, though, is that I get to bounce in and out of lots of these teams and build up networks and build experience with lots of different types of exhibition makers. So, um, yeah, ultimately, I do enjoy my position of uh, being independent. Um, but every so often, I do miss the, the water cooler chat or the, yeah. you know, the being part of the team. I was, in, I was in with a client the other day who've got a really nice open plan office where all the designers and the exhibition producers sit and they were looking at colour samples for a new exhibition that they were making and everyone was on their tea break everyone was sort of wading in having their penneth on it and I kind of missed that collaborative creative work on a daily basis yeah yeah but I yeah I enjoyed the fact that I get to bounce in and out of these places as a as a freelancer so you're quite established now as a freelancer do you find that most of the work that you and now offered comes through a result of strong networks and through reputation or are you still applying for particular things that come up or is it a combination of those two things? Yeah it's a, it's a mix of those things so I've been freelance for 15 years so I've, I have built up a network of people you know there are certain clients that will quite regularly call me back or invite me to picture a piece of work yet there are also always new projects on the horizon as well particularly for large projects, so bigger projects, say redevelopments of uh, a museum or a heritage site, it's only going to happen once every 20 or 30 years. So it's hard to get regular work out of uh, a project like that. 
So you've got to have your eye on the horizon to a certain extent, know what projects are coming up and what potential pitches might need to be there. And I do quite enjoy that business development side of the work of, of pitching for projects or putting a proposal together. Yeah, it is also nice, um, a bit more established as a freelancer after a few years of doing it to know that the phone will usually ring at some point and uh, a client might ask me back. That said, I have learned never to rest on my laurels because organisations change, uh, politics change, recessions come and go, trends in interpretation and project funding have been shifting continually throughout my career. So one is never entirely confident that the work will always be there. I mean, it's never been famine. It's normally a mixture of feast or scant buffet. <laughs> but, um, but that is always there if you're a freelancer, that where is the work going to come from, even once you've been doing it for, for a fair while. And you've recently uh, written a book about interpretation. So how did that come about? So I do a fair bit of teaching and coaching around heritage interpretation, sometimes as part of academic courses, quite often in a professional setting. So a museum will ask me to come in and say, give a talk or a, a lecture or a workshop about interpretation. Quite often I was finding when I got to the end of one of those, people would say, what, what should I read next? Yeah, thanks for your one day workshop, but where do I go next for the textbook on it? And there are a fair few of them out there. But there wasn't one, I don't think, that from a British perspective, you know, that was uh, from quite, quite a lot of American titles in, in heritage interpretation. And there are quite a few theoretical books out there. So I wanted to write something that matched up the theory and also the practice of delivering heritage interpretation. So that was kind of my rationale, I suppose. I couldn't just put my hand on the, oh yeah, go and read such and such's book. It's a really good guide to it, right? So that was part of a, a reason for, for writing it. The, the main reason I wrote the book was around the, the fact that heritage, interpretation happens in every museum, gallery, library, archive, across the country, across the world, right? It, people make exhibitions all the time. Yet there's only a few hundred people who call themselves interpreters or interpretation officer or interpretation manager in the UK. But there's thousands of museums. Everyone's making this content. It's normally just a part of someone else's job. It's part of a curator's job. It's part of a designer's job. It's part of the learning officer's job to edit the text. It's part of the conservator's job to prepare the objects and also write the copy that goes with them. In very small museums, there's one person running the whole place who's got to do all of the things. And interpretation is a part of their skill set. So I wanted to write a go-to book that you could just have on standby whenever you came around to exhibition making time. Ah, oh, yeah, here's the thing that just talks me through the process. So those are the, the two main reasons that I wrote the book. And I also had to do a little bit of, you know, scratching around to say, would this kind of thing be of interest to people? So I talked to a few of my clients and friends in the sector and said, you know, would this kind of thing appeal? And people almost bit my hand off and said, yeah, when can I buy it? I was like, oh, well, I haven't really yet. So, but that was part of my rationale, I think, to go to a publisher and say, would this, um, would this fit with your list? And fortunately, Routledge said yes. And um, yeah, and the book is out there. So the, the kind of work you're doing at the moment is varied and wide ranging. Is this the kind of thing that you thought you'd be doing when you were thinking initially about careers? 
perhaps when you were at school or a little later? Mm -hmm. Was it what I intended to do? I remember at school doing one of those quizzes about what are your skills and what subjects are you interested in and where should you end up in life? I went to the kind of school that wanted to push you into certain job roles or disciplines. And it became clear very quickly that I'm not a natural scientist and I'm not really much of a mathematician. So the arts and the humanities were certainly where it looked like I was headed, academically at least. But what I ever thought I might be doing, I mean, I don't really know. I guess as a kid, all I really wanted to be was cabin crew. But it turns out I'm too tall. Oh, really? So that was kind of... I didn't of, know there was a yeah, height limit on that. Yeah, there's a height restriction. Well, you know, you've got to be able to get up and down the, the galley and, you know, in and out the doors quickly, haven't you? So I think actually, given my brief experience uh, in my career in customer service, um, it's a good job that I'm... Not cabin crew, but I don't think I really have the attitude for it. Huge respect, but not the personal aptitude for it. Yeah, so as a kid and as a teenager, I really didn't know what I wanted to do at all. But the arts appealed to me. For a while, I thought I wanted to work in TV. And I did a bit of work experience at the BBC and realised that I did not want to work in TV. So that was a good lesson to learn. So was that a part of a school placement, like a work experience? Mm. So I was at university, yeah, I did a, like a little oh, placement right, okay. at, at the BBC. And it, yeah, I learned a fair bit. And the main thing I learned was TV was not for me. And I thought I might want to work in performance art management for a while. But again, that's because kind of what my, what my mates did. And I didn't fall into that at all. Randomly, I fell into museums. In terms of choosing subjects, were you just following subjects that you were interested in or had a natural aptitude towards yeah very much so yeah I've got to the end of my school career and thought well of all of this what am I any good at and what am I interested in and looking back the signs are all there I as a teenager had volunteered at my local national trust property as a as a room steward you know the people who sit there with the binder of all the information yeah. and and pounce on you to try and tell you as much information as they can yeah, as a teenager, I mean, the signs that I'm a professional geek were right there as well, weren't they? That, you know, I <laughs> a... Was it just that you hadn't considered that that was a career possibility to work in those kind of venues? Absolutely not. I had no idea that people actually might go and work for the National Trust. But it did give me an insight into watching visitors come through the space and everybody that was going through that National Trust property was having a completely different individual visitor experience mm. and it did put something inside me I think that said ah right you can try as much as you like by writing text on the wall in a museum or prescribing what visitors might do but not one of them will have an identical experience to anybody else because we all come with our own preconceptions and our own understanding and experiences and a heritage visitor experience can only ever be what it is for you you can't make it completely standardised for everybody. Thinking about that as a kid, didn't realise that there was a job based around doing that at all. It was just something that was going through my mind. It was only when I got to uh, university and I needed a summer job and I was temping. I went to a temp agency and said, have you got anything that's not typing in an office or answering the phone for a bank call centre? by all you know, interesting things that I'd done. Uh, they said, do you want to go and work on the ticket desk at the Imperial War Museum? And I said, well, that sounds like fun. Yeah, sure. 
I did. And from that, managed to, by hook and by crook, wangle my way into the museum world. Got something of the bug from being on the floor uh, on the welcome desk of a museum, talking to visitors, talking to staff behind the scenes, seeing, witnessing the kind of jobs and roles that were there and thinking they all look like really good jobs. They look better than working in TV. I wonder what that's all about. So did you realise quite early on that that was the kind of environment that you wanted to work in? The environment, yes, but not necessarily what the job would be. Right. There was something about being in the museum space that was like, oh, this is this feels this feels right. This feels right. great for me. And uh, I just finished my degree, and I was in that kind of that kind of paralysed moment when you realise that formal education has, at long last, come to a complete end, and you are now on your own. <laughs> like there's nothing else there. Hey, that- that year, that first year is really tricky, isn't it? That It's a potential wilderness year where anything can happen. If you have an interest, you can plug away and, and hope that you're going to kind of forge a pathway through into that. Or you can take up a random job, which then completely dictates the course of your life after yeah. that, which it sounds like you were quite fortunate in a way to oh, have gone to a temp completely. agency and then had that. Yeah, completely fortunate that I fell into that into that space. Um, You're saying, I, I know I don't want to do this thing. Yeah. Um, you know, which was call centres and that yeah. kind of thing, and then ending up in the Imperial War Museum. Yet, all those jobs that I'd done, working in a call centre, working on the phones for a market research agency, all that stuff is really important stuff that I've learned along the way. Yeah. Because working on the phones in a market research agency, calling people up and asking them to give satisfaction ratings for their insurance policy, taught me how to write a research question. Yeah. How to talk to strangers about something that they think they don't want to talk to you about and persuading them to give you their insight. Whilst being there, having the opportunity to talk to the people who are going to analyse the results of the survey questions that we were asking, that's what quant and qual analysis looked like. Oh, so picking things up as I was going along, not realising that they were going to become useful at some point yeah. when I had to go to social research school to figure out how to do evaluation, right? <laughs> I was like, oh, right, I've written questionnaires before. I've asked people questions. Understanding people's experience of banking was actually really important for figuring out how you figure out what's going on inside someone's experience. Yeah, um, yeah. So they were all they were all really useful jobs that I'd done over the years. Um, even, you know, working in a petrol station or I made candles one summer um, in Covent Garden Market. <laughs> <laughs> all of it kind of somehow feeds into jobs that you then have later in life. Or at least that's the way I try to see it looking back on it. You don't no, know I think it at you're the right. time. I think you're right. And I seem to come coming to the end of university, all my mates were going off and doing graduate training schemes and you know joining consulting companies, and that really didn't appeal at all. So I um, got a call from somebody who I had worked with at the Imperial Museum and said, someone's just left. Do you want to come and do a few weeks of admin in the education office at the Imperial Museum? And I was like, yeah, great. I'm just sat there doing nothing, so super. It was a perfect moment for me to to grab that and and get my first job where I could get some real understanding of what life in a museum was like. So how long did that last for, that position at the Imperial War Museum? Was it just a temporary thing? I was there for a year, right. um, became a member of staff there, and 
was really exciting time for me. I was earning absolutely nothing. I look back on now and how I lived in zone two of London on a very meager salary. I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> I walked to work and I you know, had to make a lot of personal sacrifices, but the stuff I was doing, I really enjoyed. Day to day, answering the phone, taking bookings, doing some admin work, but also really fortunate to work with a super team who could spot that I just wanted to get exposure to whatever was happening out there. So joined the project team that organised the Imperial War Museum's first ever Black History Month programme. Whenever the education officers were off sick or oversubscribed, I'd go and get some experience of introducing a film in the cinema to a group of year nine, something I was terrified about doing, but it was quite good fun. Working with teachers uh, to book them in and figure out where they uh, were in their learning journey and what's, how their students were reacting to it. Being able to do some bits of research, planning some events, just learning about how professional life worked. I'm really fortunate that the people I was working with didn't just make me sit there and do the admin that I was being paid for, but allowed me to explore the landscape, the heritage landscape, uh, and learnt loads about that. So much so that when a job came up in the strategic sector of museums, libraries and archives, I jumped at it and went to become a civil servant for a few years. That's quite a big leap, really, from the Imperial War Museum to civil service. Yeah, it was back in the day when Resource had just been formed, which is the successor organisation to the Museums and Galleries Commission and the predecessor of the Museum, Library and Archive Council. And they were in the process of building a series of regional agencies across England that were going to run museum, archive and library development as a joined up and holistic exercise. And I joined the London team of that, working on admin, but the project was really exciting, trying to merge three organisations together that were representing museums, archives and libraries and create one new regional agency. I mean, the project itself was disbanded at the end. Regional agencies don't, don't exist in the format that they were being conceived of then, but it was really important insight for me to start to understand the strategic context of the um, heritage landscape. You know, by being in meetings, I was taking minutes, I was watching executive level decisions being taken, I was preparing minutes, writing papers, seeing how you turn ideas into strategy and how that, how you document that, how you try and sell that, persuasion, as well as some rather fun event planning and bringing people together into creative exercises and uh, some development work. Yeah, it was really, really eye-opening for me. But I think I realised that my heart lay in the actual creating of that content, not necessarily the management and strategic oversight of it. So really important for me. But then another job came up back at the Imperial War Museum, working on um, development of the Holocaust exhibition, which had already opened before I joined, but working on the oversight and management of the displays there uh, in that permanent exhibition as a research assistant and also working on uh, an exhibition called Crimes Against Humanity, uh, a retrospective exhibition looking at the nature of genocide. So I did a couple of years there on some pretty tough subject matter working on the Holocaust and uh, genocide but again had a really great opportunity to work in a small team 
that touched lots of different parts of the museum. I really look at that couple of years that I worked on Holocaust and genocide displays as the museum studies masters that I never did because I was doing liaison with education and doing a bit of teaching work. We were acquiring objects, so I was working with curators and the historians of the museum. Objects that were coming in and going out needed to go to conservation, so I was learning about conservation requirements. Anything we put on display had to go through the exhibitions office, so I was learning about showcase fabrication and in-case inserts and lighting and humidity and temperature. Any object we borrowed needed a loan agreement, so I was working with the legal part of the team to understand how collections move about the place. And also we were still taking in material at time from Holocaust survivors, so I was working with the survivor community and learning about how the work that museums do has real impact on people's lives. Even something that you might have thought happened decades previously, uh, museums were still having a real impact on people's lives. So that year was great because I just absorbed all of that information from across the museum and was a bit bewildered by all of it actually (laughs) because there was so much of it there but it was so exciting to be to be surrounded by all these great people doing doing really interesting jobs and being really kind and letting me into their respective parts of the museum world. Do you feel like you'd committed by that point to a career working in this area? Were you looking for other things at any of this stage or were you just kind of thinking I feel fortunate to be doing this job and I'm enjoying it I'll see what happens and then at the end of it I'll figure out what the next step is. Are we trying to piece together possible opportunities thinking about a career in that area? I think I was still very much open to it. You know, I, there weren't any really any rules about how you're supposed to progress through your museum career. Um, there were comparatively fewer museum studies courses around at the time. I didn't have the money or the resources to go and do one of those. And I felt that actually I was learning so much on the job that I didn't need to sidestep into academia again. Yeah, I think I was just really open. It could have gone anywhere. I might have ended up in broadcasting or journalism. I might have gone into writing. I might have gone to museum management. I really, I don't think I really knew actually where, where it was, where it was all headed. So it's quite interesting because this is around the time when the museum studies qualification started to become an essential, which is a contentious issue, I think. So you you did pretty well there to be moving into jobs and out of jobs without that. So by that point, you just think you had enough experience to have circumnavigated the need for that? I think so, yeah. I remember applying for jobs that said essential museum studies masters and writing our application forms. I've not got a Museum Studies Masters, but I reckon I know a fair bit. If you'll see me for interview, please do. I did get a fair few interviews on, on that basis. That said, there were some jobs that I knew I just couldn't apply for because I've not got the Masters. Yeah, it's a real problem around that period, that time. I think. Uh, but I think at that time as well, Museum Studies Masters courses were <clears throat> predominantly academic. There wasn't that much practical experience involved in them. It was it was um it was a book and paper exercise as opposed to a you know holistic um, broad learning exercise like it is now where you pick up lots of not only knowledge but skills and experiences and practical insight 
Yeah, I'm quite as clearly there at the time. So what happened at the end of that research assistant role at the Imperial War Museum? So whilst working on the Holocaust exhibition, we'd been uh, borrowing and lending a lot of objects from the Imperial War Museum and built up loads of really good networks and contacts. And as the role I was doing was fixed term, because it was job covering someone else who's on an internal secondment, um, as that came to an end, one of the lenders to the exhibition was starting a new museum, or in the process of investigating that, and asked me if I wanted to go and work with them. So as my role came to an end at the Imperial Museum, I moved over into that, which was a super opportunity to go from working in a huge organisation like a national museum to go to work uh, for a small private organisation where there was a very enthusiastic and very learned collector, a curator and a building manager and me, and we were charged with creating a new museum. (laughs) And I was to look after the, the public side of things. Huge scale up for me to suddenly think about, right, I had to do a bit of marketing and a bit of communications and write a learning plan. (laughs) And it was brilliant. Um, The museum has now gone on to open and I'm really proud whenever I stop by and see the museum, which now has a staff of a couple of dozen permanent galleries and temporary displays and a building that we didn't have at the time. You know, we were working out of a conditioned warehouse at the time, but it's now there with a fully fledged program and it's really nice to know that I was sort of there at the start of it to get in and help to shape an organisation and the people I was working with have remained firm friends as well for, for years so that was really nice to get some experience of that but I then bounced from that back into a huge organisation again where I applied for a role, a job I'd never seen before, something called an interpretation officer at the British Museum didn't really know what it was. Even the job description was not ambiguous, but it was something new I'd not seen before. And the opportunity to work in a place like the British Museum seemed like something too good to pass up. So I put in an application and um, didn't actually get the job first time around, but I think they found some more funding or they found some more jobs after a while. So uh, a few months after applying for that job, got a call back and said, well, you came second, actually, but would you, you passed the board. Would you like to come and, and work in the British Museum? And I, it was on a Friday afternoon. And I remember thinking, do you mind if I have the weekend to think about it? And then actually I was like, do you know what? Sack that. I'll have it. Yeah. The British Museum <laughs> call you and say, do you want to come and work for us? Do you want a job? I was like, yeah, absolutely. So I found myself uh, tottering off to Bloomsbury to go and do interpretation <laughs> at the British Museum, which was really where I learned the craft that I do now. So what kinds of things were you doing at the British Museum? Were you working with all of the different collections and with different teams there? I joined the interpretation team at the British Museum when it was quite new. So we were doing a little bit of of bedding in, you know, explaining to the museum what interpretation was, exploring for ourselves what interpretation was. And we had a brilliant remit uh, when I was an interpretation officer We'd be assigned to certain projects uh, internally, which were usually temporary exhibitions. So working with the curator, the person who has a deep understanding of the subject matter, 
and with a design team, so 3D and 2D graphic layout designers to build visitor experiences. It could be anything from a redisplay of a couple of showcases to a temporary installation in a gallery to a full temporary exhibition, so we'd be attached to exhibitions for a few years, and even worked on a few uh, redevelopments of the permanent galleries as well. So it was a, a real mixed bag. And we were specifically not working on subjects with which we had any prior knowledge or uh, affinity. The idea was that we could play that role of the audience advocate and ask the questions that the visitors would be, would be asking. We had a really great space at the British Museum, which is still there, room three. So if you go in through the, um, to the south entrance, the big columned entrance with the steps up to it, if you go in and turn immediately to your right, room three is a small space, which is still used for quite rapid turnover exhibitions. And at the time, this is sort of 2006, seven, eight, uh, it was a experimental space. So we were able to put displays in there that were different to how the British Museum had traditionally made exhibitions. We're testing out new interpretive and exhibition display ideas in there and had a reasonable resource for evaluating that with the public. So we put something in there, something that was intentionally different to how the BM had normally communicated with audiences, set a re uh, audience research brief and then tried to figure out whether it was working or not. And we learned so much from that. It was a really really exciting and useful way of reflecting on our own work and then embedding, trying to embed that into the temporary exhibition programme and the permanent galleries of the museum. The team identified things like gateway objects that you could take one object, whether it was hugely beautiful or may look quite small or inconsequential, and the way you interpreted it, the way you displayed it or the way you offered it up to the public, could really change how the public think about it and could also allow it to be a gateway into other parts of the collection as well. It might not look like much, but if you raise it up and put it on a beautiful plinth and spotlight it, visitors pay attention to it in a different way than if it was in a display case with 60 other objects. And that offers new storytelling um, devices. We were playing around with how many messages we could get into visitors from one object. If you put four stories around different sides of an object, can visitors take all four of them in and do they remember them all? No, actually, it's really hard to get lots and lots of perspectives on one object. That's really good for museums to know because we've often got so many stories about an object, we want to tell all of them to the public. But actually, our research was showing that if you bombard people with too much information, they won't take it all in. And we were learning about the power of panels on the wall, you know, the big text that goes up on the wall and labels, the smaller text that goes closer to it, and realising where the interpretive power lies in that dynamic. Um, and we learned so much about it. It was really exciting interpretive playground. It sounds amazing. That sounds great. And there's only somewhere that, like the British Museum that could do it because you needed the resource to be able to design and install. Sometimes we were doing, I don't know, more than half a dozen exhibitions a year in the room. Right. Um, to be able to install those and the resource to evaluate them all. Um, it was a fairly hefty project yeah. uh, budget-wise and, and it impacted on the working practice of the people that were delivering it. But it was a great development opportunity for us to learn about, yeah. Was that role at the British Museum a fixed-term contract or was that an open-ended thing? That was a fixed-term contract, yeah. I think it was for two years. I did actually stay a bit longer than that. Uh, I stayed three years in the end uh, at the museum. 
What really fired us up, I think, in the interpretation unit at the time was that we'd all come from different backgrounds. So I'd come from a bit of education time, a bit of strategy, a bit of exhibitions and making and, and, and research and collections. One of my colleagues had come from book publishing. Somebody else had been a radio editor. Uh, somebody else had been um, backgrounds in archaeology and Egyptology. Somebody had worked at the zoo. Somebody had come from science communication. And so together we all had different perspectives. So whenever a new subject would come up, be it contemporary Japanese craft or Bengali culture or a Roman emperor, we'd all have different perspectives on that. It was really nice to bounce the subjects off each other and see how we responded to it. But also that we had different skill sets, you know? We all had to learn how to do audience research, how to um, develop content, how to edit copy. But the people who come from book publishing, you know, are going to be the great editors <laughs> who really understand labels. And so we, we were learning from each other about what the skill sets to make great interpretation staff were. So what happened at the end of that project? What came after that? Fortunately, we'd proven that the interpretive project worked, that interpretation um, wasn't a dirty word, and that uh, the institution, uh, the British Museum, uh, saw value in it. Um, and the team continued. In fact, it continues to this day, and it's got some of the, some of the people that were there at the time are, are still there, and plenty of good people have been through that team my particular role, because I'd, I'd switched to a part-time job, because something inside of me was wondering about whether I wanted to work in big organisation for the rest of my career. Maybe I had a dream about moving to the seaside and keeping bees and writing books. Um, having been exposed to all these great subjects that I'd been working on across the museum, from prehistory to uh, Hadrian to Iranian coins to... Japanese kimono and glassware design, to Chinese New Year, to all the wonderful things we worked on. Um, I was like, maybe I should go and write about all of this. Maybe I want to be a writer. So I'd gone to a part-time role in the team so that I could start to explore that. And then I started doing a few little bits of freelance work here or there. And when that finally came to an end, I suppose that was the impetus for me to take the step into being freelance. It's quite a big leap. To, to becoming freelance. Was that a yeah. nerve-wracking process for you? It is quite a brave step to move out of a comfortable job, you know, a salary, PAYE, money coming in, uh, working for a great institution like the British Museum. But the part-time job had come to an end and that wasn't going to be continued at the museum. Um, I thought, do you know what, could I make a go of it as uh, a freelancer? And fortune or accident or I don't know what but as part of the work I've been doing at the BM we've done a lot of work on uh, audio guides and written some scripts for audio internally at the BM um, and as my job came to an end the contract for writing the British Museum multimedia guide came up and so yes it was a brave step to move away from salary and comfortable job but when an organisation that you know really well, and all the curators that you know really well, offer up a role where you can, as a freelancer, write content for them, that was too good to pass up. So I was really fortunate that as I moved into that next chapter of freelance life, I was able to do a great piece of work writing multimedia content for the BM. So that was a, that was a couple of months um, 
piece of work. How did you manage that in the, the early stages? Obviously, you've worked in a big organisation like the BM. You've worked in Imperial War Museum. How do you go about setting yourself up as a freelancer? How do you go about starting to build those networks? Well, as you might have gathered from how I found my way through my career so far, there was no real grand plan. I sort of landed myself in it and thought, right, how do we make this work? My goal was to try and earn as much as my final year of British Museum salary from my first year of of freelance work. And if that didn't work, I'd have to go back and get a real job again. That was, I guess, the proof to myself that I could get some work in. The, the first piece of British Museum freelance work was uh, pretty good. I didn't really know many other people who were freelance at the time in the museum sector, maybe two or three. So my first port of call was to buy them both lunch and politely and hopefully not too firmly grill them on what I needed to know. Um, things like setting yourself up as a self-employed, which is incredibly straightforward. You go to HMRC and you say, I'd like to be self-employed, please. And they go, yeah, right, here you go, here's a number. It's not difficult at all. Uh, and learning how to do my own accounts and tax return and that kind of thing. But also figuring out how to get work in. How do you start finding this work once you're a freelancer? It's the big question lots of people ask when they're going into freelance, where is the work going to come from? And the piece of advice that I was given and the one that I will repeat to anybody who's going freelance is that in the first few weeks and months, you cannot buy too many cups of coffee for people that you've met and that you know from the sector. People I've worked with previously within museums, but also suppliers to the sector, some of the people who were, that I'd previously commissioned, I was like, well, you know, six months ago, we were offering you a contract. Can I now please buy you a cup of coffee and find out what's happening in your world? I'm newly freelance and very openly sort of looking for some work, but also trying to put my face around. The reason why I recommend it to everybody is for me and for everyone else that I've met, it usually somehow leads to something. Because out of those 20 cups of coffee that you buy for different people and spend an hour traipsing around the place to go and see people, every so often they'll be like, oh, do you know what? You've asked at a really good time. I've got a small piece of work. Could you edit some copy for me? Or um, So a few of those came off and got me my first con official contracts, if you like, my freelance contracts um, of different pieces of interpretive work. I still hadn't really figured out what I was doing freelance though. What was my offer? Am I a writer? Am I a blogger? I was writing quite a lot of blog content at the time. Am I an um, interpreter? Am I an editor? Am I a researcher? Am I an audience researcher? Yeah. And in the first few years, I was, whatever you need. <laughs> yeah. what, what kind of services do you offer? Or what do you want? Was, would be my response. And found that I was doing a fair mix of interpretive work, but also um, audience research, training, all sorts of, of bits and bobs around the place. But alongside that, I had been doing a fair bit of volunteering throughout my career, actually. From being at National Trust, from, uh, you know, as a, as a teenager, as a student doing a little bit of local uh, culture organisation, volunteering when I was... Uh, uh, I joined the Friends organisation of my local art gallery and found myself on like the Friends committee to help organise and run a Friends organisation. 
we, uh, with some other people, we set up a film club, a volunteer-run film club in an art gallery. And then a group of us had come together in sort of the early age of blogging uh, and created a, a local group blog about the part of South London that we were living in, um, sort of supporting arts and culture. And all of that had given me sort of extra experience, I suppose, but also, yeah, people I could call on networks, people that you'd met from, oh, do you remember I was a trustee of the thing with you? Can I buy you a cuppa and figure out what's going on? Or um, people that I'd been writing with or people we'd been exploring fun ideas with over the years, then they were all good people to surround myself with and some of them yielded some work. So what does the future look like for you? What projects are you working on at the moment and, and what have you got coming up in the future? Well, now I've been doing it 15 years, I have got that slight security that there will always be work out there. But I must say, there's still not that much of a plan. Very happy to be led by wherever the the world takes us, or whatever comes in on the on the wind next. I've made it as a freelancer through a pandemic and a couple of recessions. So you know, the the being agile is probably quite quite useful. On my desk at the moment, there's um, some interpretation planning work. So some really sort of very early. And ideas about the potentials of what some extra emissions might be. This morning I've been editing the details of text, so working with curators and changing the ones and zeros in uh, in labels. There's the delightful middle bit where you're sort of developing content and shaping it as it moves along, working with curators. There's a fair bit of audience research, so doing focus groups uh, and testing with audiences. And there's some teaching work and coaching, which is always quite nice. So that mixed bag is really enjoyable. Sometimes a bit stressful that when there's too much of it and it all comes at once, but that's part of the nature of, of working myself. And a fair bit of writing as well. So writing about interpretation. I've written a book and there's a germ of an idea for what might be another book, but who knows whether I'll get round to writing that or not, because if you want to become rich, don't write a book. Um, <laughs> or don't write an academic I, don't write a textbook yeah also if you've gone rich don't work in museums <laughs> <laughs> um, so the plan is not to become hugely rich I don't suppose because that's not what's in my um, uh, experience but really happy to uh, over the years to have worked on a few commercial projects on a few international projects so if some more of those were to come along they're quite nice because they well, they pay well, but they also bring more experience, more sort of breadth to the to the skill set and to the knowledge of how this place works. I'm really interested in in visitors and how, and what makes them tick and how we use that to make content that's as relevant to them as possible. Over the last twenty years or so of my career, things have shifted, trends have come and gone, and there will be more trends that come into heritage interpretation and I'm kind of looking forward to see what the what the next ones are keep on keep on learning keep on reading about them keep on going to museums really taking more pictures and absorbing it all so what comes next not entirely sure but I'm kind of excited to see what happens well thank you very much for your time today Steve I really appreciate it it's nice. It's nice to stop and reflect on my own journey, which I've not really done that much. So thank you for being uh, a prompt to that. But also it's helpful to be able to explain something about the nature of freelance work to people who might be thinking about going into it. Um, 
if you think there's a great big plan about how to be a freelancer, there's not. You need a bit of intuition and a bit of um, a little bit of risk to it. Um, but it's also really fun, and I kind of enjoy sharing that that story with people. So thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud and Facebook using the handle Cultural Peeps. And if you want a bit more information about the Careers Pathway project or about any of the conversations or participants, then there's a project blog which is available at culturalpeeps.wordpress.com. 